Welcome to the Positive Impact Podcast. This is your host, Alexandra Black Pollock. Today we'll be diving into the world of movers, shakers, and change makers and seeing how they make the world a better place. This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Tired of the grocery store? Looking to spice up dinners? HelloFresh delivers delicious ingredients and easy recipes straight to your door. Take $40 off your first box at positiveimpactpodcast.com slash fresh. You'll be enjoying cooking again in no time. I'm so excited. Anna Lenhart is the founder of the Next Generation Service Movement, a revolutionary nonprofit shaking up the traditional career path by empowering young people to chart professional lives. NGS does this by connecting youth to social change organizations and opportunities for a year of service. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. When I first met you, I was just blown away by your mission, especially as someone who served in AmeriCorps and how that helped shape my career path. So what inspired you to kind of create this mission or redefine what your traditional career path is? Yeah, it's a good question. So in 2009, I was a junior at Carnegie Mellon University. I was studying engineering and I was having some health problems and it just became very clear to me that I needed to take a quote unquote year off. Um, And so I, I had coincidentally done Habitat for Humanity spring break that year and I met an NCCC member which is a a branch of AmeriCorps and she was building houses and she told me you know I just I'm building houses this whole year and I was like that's awesome she's like I'm getting a stipend and so she kind of planted the idea that I could do AmeriCorps and she said I didn't need a degree to do it so I was like great um so I went to the AmeriCorps website and I applied for everything in California (laughs) because I was from the east coast and really wanted to go to California it is sunny and gorgeous here I know it was a great decision and I was in Pittsburgh which is like rainy and muggy and terrible so I ended up at getting an AmeriCorps Vista position at Shakti Rising which is a women's recovery center which is where we're actually sitting right now and I have to admit (laughs) this is an amazing facility and the work they do here is absolutely phenomenal yeah is um, incredibly life-changing. So my year off was really not a year off at all. Um, I actually got to really see how my logical kind of engineering systems brain could be really useful in the social change sector. And also that I have some other skills too, like counseling and my ability to connect with people and and teach and mentor and guide um, that I probably wouldn't have ever discovered if I had just stayed in the engineering track. So um, it was really life-changing. And basically... I went back to complete my degree for my senior year, and I noticed all of my friends just super stressed, not knowing what they wanted to do, and they had never heard about these long-term service opportunities. Um, And so I just really realized that there was a gap between the knowledge about these programs and the career center outreach that was happening around long-term service. I have to admit, I was one of those people. That's how I stumbled into AmeriCorps. Mine wasn't near as mission-driven as yours, much more... I had no idea what to do with my life, and I had kind of worked with nonprofits, and I actually saw a job posting for my AmeriCorps position, mm-hmm. and it was still in Montana, so I wasn't quite seeking out that San Diego sh- sunshine yet, mm-hmm. and so I just stumbled into it, and so yeah, it was really expanding on what I could even do, and one thing we've talked before about is experiential learning, and kind of expanding beyond the niche that colleges can put you in. Mm-hmm. So... Let's take a second to talk about what the traditional career path is. Mm. And you mentor a lot of different students coming out of college. And so when we look at the traditional path, a lot of times it's you graduate high school, you go to college, and then you're going to get a corporate job. Years ago, it used to be that you were there for 20 years, once and done, wash your hands, and then you're, that's mm-hmm. it. 
So what are people telling you about how they view this or how mm-hmm. they're struggling with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things. One, it's just almost impossible to have that path anymore. I mean, very, very few companies are even going to exist in 10 or 15 years, to be to be honest. And, and most of them don't expect to keep their employees for that long. And I don't think there's very many millennials that actually want that anymore. And so... But what I'm really hearing when I talk to young people is, you know, I, I don't know what I want to do. I have this skill set. I really want to make a difference with this skill set. Um, but, yeah, they don't have the hands-on experience. But what they, what they know is that they want to be entrepreneurial, and they know that that's needed in the workforce. Um, and so a year of service is a great way to do that. You're an underfunded, understaffed organization. Um, you know, you get to wear 10 different hats at most of these nonprofits. And, frankly, most of these nonprofits give these recent grads more leadership opportunities than any kind of big corporation would give to someone that age. So it's it's really a great way to start your career. But also, um, and on a similar kind of standpoint, I'm talking to these companies, right? I talk to companies frequently, and even they're saying, like, we need to see someone who's entrepreneurial. We need to someone with experience. They're not just trusting that you've gotten that kind of entrepreneurial testing, so to speak, um, in your undergrad. Which you definitely don't. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, colleges can be in a amazing resource for so many things but they're very systematic Mm -hmm. especially they're large it's an education system Mm -hmm. so you don't get those real life experiences you're you know they have the occasional group work and college Mm -hmm. projects which has yet to simulate anything in real life yeah well and it's funny too because more and more universities are starting incubators it's like becoming the very common kind of trend and if you talk to people in higher ed they're saying like look we know that we're becoming like traditional higher ed is becoming obsolete because of online education. So we have to make an experience for our students. We have to provide these incubators. And so they are doing that. But then the struggle becomes how do you actually create meaningful programs where they can actually make a difference, where students can make a difference. So they're not just selling T-shirts or something, but they can learn these entrepreneurial skills while impacting a community. So that's actually a huge problem, and one I was going to tap into later, but I'm so glad we brought up. I mean, if we do redefine the career path, Mm -hmm. and let's say that as you go from college, or whether it's during a year of college and you want to pursue a year of service, you know, there's millions and millions of students graduating from high school and college this year. I don't seem to know of that many service opportunities Mm -hmm. to basically equip that need. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, Actually, so recent uh, research and work that's been done by the Franklin Project really shows that... Um, between AmeriCorps, Peace Corps, and kind of the religious service year programs, there's about 100,000 service year positions in the country right now, available to Americans right now. And again, that's a a rough estimate. Um, And yeah, we're talking about millions. We need millions. So that's a big part of the work that needs to be done, and it's a big part of what NGS is is working on as well. So this fall, we'll be launching our long-term service year program curriculum. It's kind of going to be the start of an incubator. So nonprofits can come to us, they can say, hey, we want to create a position at our nonprofit, our organization, or higher ed, um, or even governments could, could do this as well, and say, you know, we want to create a stipend position. This is what we're looking for. How do we create this legally? How do we pay them? How do we house them? All of that. So I like the emphasis on legally. Legally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> All recent grads should enjoy that. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because it's not very common, right? So actually the laws around this are really tough, and I'm really running into a lot of challenges with that. And it's just one of those things that I think as we create more programs, the laws will kind of catch up to the work. I love that you brought up AmeriCorps and Peace Corps, and I've got some stats on those. Mm -hmm. Just to show, I mean, the impact that those programs have, 
is monumental. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to undercut that because as somebody who served and knowing several friends who've been in Peace Corps, it's phenomenal work. Mm -hmm. But there's just such a gap between changing this entire career force and getting millennials to engage in this. So AmeriCorps engages about 75,000 Americans in intensive service programs each year. So since 1994, more than 900,000 members have completed about 1.2 billion hours of service. Once again, phenomenal, mm -hmm. that's 75,000 a year. That's like one college. Mm -hmm. Peace Corps, so they've had about 220,000 members served since 1961 in 140 different countries. Mm. That's even a smaller percentage. Yeah, yeah. They have a much fewer positions, yeah. And those are really competitive positions, Very too. Very competitive positions, yes. Which having a competitive position isn't a bad thing, mm -hmm. it just... Yeah, well, it just what it does is it shows the, the need and the want. I mean, there are kids that are graduating, and, and many of them with thousands of dollars in debt, you know, and they're still willing to say, look, I'll postpone, quote-unquote, starting my career to, to serve my country to serve the to serve the, my communities and to serve this really important work that needs to happen. So, I mean, that should be like a really huge solution alert, you know, to our country. Um, so yeah. two great things there. First, you know, really grappling with the problem of creating these programs. But also I wanted to touch on that idea of quote unquote, postponing or mm -hmm. pausing your career path, mm -hmm. because this is some of the great stuff that NGS is diving into is this should just become part of the standard. Yeah, absolutely. And so working with a lot of these students, are you finding that this is the mentality? They're like, oh, what happens if I put my career on mm -hmm. pause? Or are these some of the issues they're grappling with? No, you know, it's interesting. I think this generation really does understand that volunteering is a way to build their resume. Um, and in fact, like they've almost, it's been like grilled into their brain. Like you, you have to work for free first, which... I, is not great and there's a lot of issues around privilege that come up with that um and in ngs we really do focus on long-term stipend programs granted the stipends are generally around poverty level but it's the idea that you're still being supported um so so typically they do understand that like they're using this experience to build skills i think there's some hesitation more around how do they tell their parents like how do i explain that this is actually going to help my career to my parents and we try to help with that so when offering help, kind of how do they address those issues? Mm -hmm. And I actually spoke to my parents and mm -hmm. had that conversation. But mm -hmm. once again, I treated it like a normal job opportunity. Mm -hmm. So, and I had, let's be honest, very few options after graduating. So it was like, look, found this glorious opportunity yeah. still in Bozeman. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you give to people? Yeah. And it, well, so first I try to get a little bit of background on, on their parents and what their mentality is. And then I try to kind of put the student into kind of have them empathize with their parents, kind of be in their shoes and just realize like, look, they're trying to protect you. They care about you. Um, they don't want to see you, you know, struggling financially or all of these things. Um, so trying to get them in that perspective and then also saying that, but, but they also do want you to be happy and want you to be fulfilled. So how can you explain how this opportunity is going to lead to that in a way that you know, really highlights that this is actually going to bring you closer to your purpose. And, and we, there's a lot of studies out there that show that once you're doing the work that you're called to do, you know, that you're, you have a vocation for, that you actually do end up making, making more money because um, you like it and you enjoy it and you, and you get to the top faster. Um, so we, we have some of that research on hand and, you know, we have blog posts on that. And then we also have a whole collection of stories of young people who've done service and then have used that to launch themselves into a sustainable career where they're paying their bills and having families. So we can let students use those and share those with their family too. I love that. Just combining the resources and stories with facts. 
I mean, it's always great because you can kind of tug on the heart steam strings and then you have these actual facts to prove it. Yeah. And also just millennia in general. And I've seen the research that mm-hmm. when you find jobs that you're passionate about, it is easier to excel mm-hmm. because you're driving, you know, rather than your nine to five becoming this miserable place, you're also working to, towards something good and you're part of the mission and you're connected and you're plugged in and you're using your actual skill sets, which I have to admit, sometimes coming out of college, you don't always know what those skill sets are. Right. You often don't know what those are, really. <laughs> Especially coming, you know, my degree was in graphic design. Yeah. Turns out I'm not a very good graphic designer. <laughs> but in my service year, mm-hmm. I got to go through a whole entire skill set. Mm-hmm. And I got to really play with those and also test out a lot of graphic design, mm-hmm. uh, which luckily for me didn't go as well as it could have. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's also interesting because if you look at what businesses need, what the future and innovation needs, they really need soft skills. A lot of times they need really, you know, influential communication skills. They need people who, you know, can understand how people feel and react to being, to what's being said. I mean, there's these soft skills that are just frankly not even taught in most universities. There's something you have to learn in the field and especially empathy. And I think it's easier to learn empathy. You're going to learn empathy at a faster rate when you're working with an underserved population, which typically the AmeriCorps and Peace Corps programs, you are. You're working with a population that's you know, maybe outside of your comfort zone or um, and needs some kind of set of services. So. so let's touch on empathy for a minute because especially all the world around business. So they talk about having all these soft skills, about having emotional intelligence, but empathy is really underused. So one of the great missions that you have for NGS and just this movement in general is this idea and this vision of every CEO in the U.S. having served in and worked with a nonprofit. And so that comes with it is empathy. So how is having this empathy going to change the tide in business and how we see business in the U.S. right now? Because a lot of business, while it has this incredible impact for good, especially through social entrepreneurs, business is really kind of villainized in today's market. Mm. So how can we use empathy to help change this or even just working and having a better understanding of culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's really important because, you know, as social entrepreneurship is emerging, you're seeing some companies who really get it and are really making huge impact. And you see some that are really taking what I call the Band-Aid approach, where they're really just like, OK, we're going to sell this product and we're going to give a percentage to some organization, often without really understanding the impact of, of that work. And we talk about this a lot, you know, if you read Dead Aid and you look into the complexities that come around with, with throwing money on problems without really understanding the people that you're serving. And so I meet a lot of young, especially young social entrepreneurs who are like, you know, I'm going to solve homelessness by like cre- creating these pads and having kids make them. And, and, and I'm sitting there like, I would really like you to work in a homeless shelter for a year first. You know, because the, then you're really going to understand why some of the solution you just threw out there probably is going to be more complicated and the challenges you're going to actually come across and, you know, the, the systemic issues that you're not really going to be able to address. So that's huge. And it's actually really interesting because, you know, so many of us are filled with this desire to help and we really want to help and we only get a glimpse of the surface. Mm-hmm. So we actually don't see, like you mentioned, all those underlying issues. Right. I exactly. remember in my AmeriCorps service, Somebody asking once we were going through training, and one of the questions they brought up is, does that population actually want your help? Mm-hmm. And it's not only does it want your help, it's like, do you actually even understand the problem? Because mm-hmm. like you said, Band-Aids, you know, I'm trying to cut or fix a cut on the leg, but really mm-hmm. you have all this, you know, you haven't eaten in a week and it's... Right, exactly. No, exactly. And that's why I mean, people ask a lot of times, do you know, do you do internships? Do you do like two-week travel, volunteerism? And we, and we don't. 
Um, and I'm not going to go into all the, everything that surrounds those, but we focus on long-term service. And because we really believe that a lot of times in this year of service, whether it's abroad or domestic, you, you might not have a huge impact, but the impact on you is that you will leave with a deeper understanding, I guarantee this, of the social issue you're working on than if you had just served on a couple Saturdays for a semester or something. Um, and so that's really the most important thing to me because that's going to create CEOs that have a deeper understanding of that issue that they worked on for a year, but also they're going to understand how that issue is connected to a lot of other issues too because over a year you get to see how everything intersects. And I mean, nothing's ever one-sided. It's always multifaceted. Absolutely. So you talked a lot about the different types of service. Mm. So a year of service is probably a term that a lot of people haven't heard of or they kind of know about Peace Corps, but they have no idea what AmeriCorps is. Right. Or want. So can you kind of describe, and there's obviously so many different ways and ways mm-hmm. that can look like. Can you describe some of them or what your yeah. visions are for these new? Yeah, yeah. thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, I say year of service, but obviously Peace Corps is over two years. So it's actually an inaccurate term. Um, and there's a lot of big organizations using service year. It's, it's the same idea. It's this idea of long-term service where you're, almost like a staff member or like a full-time member of a, of a social change organization. Boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. Yeah, exactly. Getting stuff done. Um, I think that's even AmeriCorps' motto is like, get shit done, get stuff done. Um, <laughs> so, and when I was in AmeriCorps, there was a lot of dirty work involved. And yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the important, important stuff. And it's humbling, too. I think that's important. Yeah. So that's, that's basically what we mean is any kind of long-term service. So for the people coming into our incubator, it's actually, it looks different for all of them. So some of them are actually trying to start community houses where they put a young person that's living in the house at a nonprofit for a year and kind of give them guidance and support. Just to clarify, the incubators are actually nonprofits coming to you wanting to create these. Yeah, so our incubator is, right now, it's just a seven-week program that helps people who want to start service year programs. Yes. And it will become more of a formal incubator, but we're we're kind of just getting to start. But the idea is it could be a nonprofit that just instead of hiring someone, maybe they can't afford to hire someone or they just really want to create a service year position, um, they can come to us and we can talk about how they do that and how they support that young person and create a job description that is is doable for a recent grad. Um, And then it could also be, like I said, someone trying to actually create a whole new service year program like Food Corps or Teach for America, right? Those are created by entrepreneurs. So it's kind of both sides of that. That's really exciting. It's such a breath. Can you kind of give us some examples or take us inside what some of these might look like? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the most common ones are going to be, you know, a, a nonprofit that has a lot of volunteers and needs a volunteer manager, right? And that's something that someone straight out of college with the personal skills and desire could do. Um, they can manage a volunteer program. They can send thank yous. They can organize volunteers. They can recruit volunteers. They can do all of those things. And honestly, that is HR, right? I mean, if you can manage a volunteer program, you're really setting yourself up for skills that could be really useful in, in traditional HR. And let's be honest, volunteers, while so good-hearted and I love them and I've used them in different organizations, they are some of the hardest populations to manage. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you can do a good job having motivating volunteers, imagine what you can do with paid employees. Right, and also making them feel worthwhile and letting them know that their time investment is valuable. Mm -hmm. Because with an employee, when they give a time investment, you know, there's an exchange for a paycheck. A volunteer, that is just their time. And if they don't feel valuable, Mm -hmm. they're going to leave. And what's funny is that millennials, they don't care so much about the paycheck. They want to feel valued, too. So it's it's a very crossover to what's needed today. And it's going to become even more so. Oh, yeah, for sure. What are some other examples and maybe um, some tangible examples of what a service program might look like? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, the biggest one in the United States is Habitat for Humanity. So literally, and that's called direct service. So the idea of really just building houses for a year at, at underserved in underserved communities where people really need homes. So that way you're actually just physically building a house. And of course, you're learning everything that goes along with that, how to work with teams, how to work with volunteers, how to work with the families that need the houses. So that's a super tangible direct service. Um, and then indirect service, you know, similar to the volunteer management position, but it has to be a grant writer. You know, you could get a really someone who has writing skills, who, you know, has a background in that from their undergrad, and you can have them set up, you know, a grant program for your organization at a nonprofit that's doing social change. So it can be anything from kind of these behind the scenes helping social change organizations to just actually doing the work. Which really highlights coming out of college, it doesn't matter what degree industry you're in, you have something to bring to an organization. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and sometimes it's going to be a mix of physical labor. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's going to push you beyond your boundaries. But that's exactly what they're designed to do is really push the scope on what you can offer an organization. And it's also a great personal discovery learning for yourself. Mm-hmm. So it's not just nonprofit organizations that are trying to create this experiential education. Colleges are also coming to the forefront and really pushing this need, which I'm sure is an actual like the business community pushing back on these recent grads not having some tangible skills. So what kind of have you seen in that space? What movement or trends have you seen or are you predicting? Yeah, um, I, the people really in the innovation, in the higher ed space are very aware that like they've got to be creating experiences, innovation labs, entrepreneurship, grants, you know, funding, non, you know, startups, whether it be nonprofit or for-profit from their students. Um, so I think that trend is absolutely going to continue. I mean, incubator programs are opening constantly, I feel like. Um, and, and frankly, actually, philanthropists are really interested in it too. So it's really going that way. Um, and you do see a lot of service programs as well on college campuses, trying to get students out into the community do, for a semester, working on a nonprofit. And I think those are great. I think they're really great experiential programs. My only kind of hesitancy with them is that when you're in school and you're taking classes and you're also then, you know, after class going to a nonprofit organization and then coming back and doing homework, I feel like there's not enough time to really digest what you saw, you know, the poverty you saw, the um, complexity of the social issues that you got to see. And so I do worry about the integration, right? Making space, whether that be meditation or group discussions to really integrate what you saw at these organizations and and the social issues that you were addressing. So now some schools are addressing that and trying to build that into these programs. But I just I remember my experience in university, and I was up at six a.m. and then awake until one a.m. doing work. So and then repeat the next day and go over yeah, again. Yeah, right, exactly. So the service didn't hit me, right? But when I was in AmeriCorps, you know, you know, don't get me wrong, I worked long days in AmeriCorps too. But there was also space created because there wasn't grades, you know, there weren't there weren't other things attached to it. And there just also weren't other responsibilities and right. things pulling at your time. You got to really be immersed in the experience. Exactly. I know for myself as well, I still got to work at the college that I went to, but it was such a unique experience not being a student anymore and mm-hmm. still being on the college campus. <laughs> that was odd. It's like, I don't have homework. <laughs> but still, you know, either leading reflections or creating dialogues around it, you're kind of forced to do some different things that when you're a college student, you just mm-hmm. don't have the capacity to do. Yeah, exactly. And I'm really excited because I do think more and more universities are catching on to the service year, the importance of that. Um, so there is a big movement right now to try to get more universities to um, really look at has a person done a year of service before coming and really putting emphasis on that for applications. I absolutely love that because, and it's not necessarily tied to service, but a lot of times in Europe, you find that kids take a gap year before college. 
Exactly. I mean, let's be honest, me at 18 was kind of a wreck. Right. I had no clue what I wanted. Um, four years later, I mm-hmm. was still skeptical. Mm-hmm. But just taking that extra year for, especially a year of service, you have that discovery. Right. And you can get to see other cultures be immersed in diversity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's huge. It's huge. And universities are noticing that. And parents are noticing it. Parents are sitting here like, I do not want to invest $200,000 in my child's education when he or she doesn't know what she wants to do. Or worse, when they aren't quite mature enough to handle that yet. Yeah. So, so they're m- much more willing to kind of support their child through a service year. So that's really exciting. Um, the other thing that's really exciting is, um, so Tulane recently launched a program that's called the One Plus Four where you do a year of service um, as kind of part of your degree. And so you start with that, and then you're with your class. So your whole class has done a year of service, and you come back with them and finish the next four years. That's amazing. It's really cool. And so I think we're going to see more of that, and that's exciting. Especially because when you look at the service year, it's kind of this guided, and you still have the support systems. Because one of the great things about going straight from high school to college is you have that, you know, your freshman year, you're very supported. You know, you have the dorm system, you have your advisors, you're very supported. So the idea of going out on your own to do a service year, to have the extra support of the university is just huge. I mean, you do have the support of the nonprofit Mm -hmm. as well, which makes that step a lot easier than doing a gap year. And and that's a really good point, too. You know, I think we used to live in a society where you graduated college and then you started your family. So you kind of like you know, had your kind of campus community and then you, you know, got married 24, 25 and started your family and it was kind of very fluid. Whereas now you see these longer gaps in between graduation and starting your family and those can be really lonely, really tough. Um, And so a service year is really a great way to kind of ease your way into living alone, potentially, if that's, if that's what's going to happen. So, so that kind of touches back. Let's kind of finish off on what your vision of this new career path is. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I'm really excited to be part of not only just NGS's work, but the national movement around this to really create a world where every young person ages 18 to 28 does a year of service. Um, So whether you're doing that before you go into your undergrad instead of undergrad, I think is absolutely an option as well, Um, or, or after you get a degree sometime in your 20s. Um, or after military service. I mean, I think it fits in with pretty much everything, and that's really exciting. So that's really the vision, and to have it happen earlier in the career rather than later, um, so that you really are carrying with you always that experience, whether it be tangible skills that you got during the year of service or just having worked with, um, you know, an underserved or at-risk population. That's so huge to take that experience with you. That's such a great moment and just really what NGS's mission is all about. Absolutely. So you guys are really addressing both sides of the issue. Not only are you helping students and just millennials in general connect with these really meaningful exchanges, you're also working on the other side of the coin with the nonprofits looking Mm -hmm. to bring these in because bringing in somebody for a year of service is no small feat. Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. And and the truth of the matter is I work a lot with alumni, too, as, as you know, because that's why we know each other. Um, I work a lot with alumni, and, and most love their service experience and say it was just incredibly useful. But some were like, you know, I had a really rough experience. Um, so it really is important that nonprofits that take long-term volunteers in are prepared to support them to make sure that they get the personal and professional growth that they need to get out of this year of service. And also you know, support the organization. It needs to be mutually beneficial. You know, a lot of times we see volunteers that drain nonprofits and vice versa. We see 
um, nonprofits that just drain volunteers. So we really, our curriculum, our incubator is really focused on how do we create mutually beneficial relationships here. That's awesome. So we've touched on nonprofits and what they're kind of doing. And obviously there's a desire there. And you guys are helping bridge the gap to actually create these service programs. We've talked a little bit about the college starting to encourage them. Mm-hmm. What about the for-profit world? Is there any room for them in this space? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Um, it is really important that HR departments at corporations understand what a service year is when they see it on an application. And similar to the way a lot of companies expect to see a four-year degree now, they need to expect to see that year of service too. And they need to, when they have someone in front of them who doesn't have a year of service, they need to ask, hey, so why don't you have one? Similar to the way they would ask someone who doesn't have a bachelor's and, and really get to why that is. So, That's huge. Yeah. And that really is, once you kind of get the business world pushing on it as well and requiring it, mm-hmm. you've NGS's mission is complete. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, luckily we're not the only ones working on this. But yeah, that is the goal, right? Is that just have it be expected. I don't think... You know, NGS is never going to fight to have it be mandatory um, like it is in some countries, but we do absolutely want to see it expected, you know. Created the cultural change that it's not just that you go to college, it's you pursue college in a service year or you pursue just a service year mm-hmm. and then get hooked up with an organization and leverage those skills. Right, exactly. Do you know any companies that are kind of helping with this movement that are already kind of starting to push back or there definitely are some um i can't i can't name any right off the top of my head uh, but i'm happy to send you some so that you can post but there are there are some that are absolutely investing in the service year movement so putting their financial money where their mouth is um and then also we're seeing some big companies that are willing to actually fund a year of service to a young person before they enter um, and so there is an organization called Service Year based out of New York City that is, is launching that movement. So that's exciting as well. But it also creates a great opportunity for the for-profit world to create some really innovative ways like funding somebody working in a nonprofit for a year. Mm-hmm. When you take somebody like yourself and you know something like Salesforce mm-hmm. and you have a company that says, we're going to hire you. But for year one, you go and do Salesforce with this organization, right. and then you've got a job with us, and you commit for three years. Right, and that's exactly some of the program. That's a great example of some programs we'd like to create. Today's rapid fire is brought to you by Backcountry.com. Headed out on an adventure? Make sure you have the best gear ready to go. Check out PositiveImpactPodcast.com/backcountry for all of our favorite gear recommendations and the lowdown on their responsible brands. Life's a balance of work, passion, and adventure. Can you tell us about a recent adventure or excursion you've gone on? Yeah. So this past May, I hiked the Grand Canyon. for five, So for five days, we were in the canyon. With, I was with some friends from college. And it was really our first, for all three of us, it was our first like overnight camping out of a backpack experience. Now, I've camped a lot. Um, I One of my life goals is to go to every national park. And I've been to about 25 and I've camped in pretty much all of them. So camping, you know, I've been doing for years. Carrying everything on my back <laughs> was a slightly different experience. Um, but it was amazing. For So we hiked down, and then we were on the Chanto Trail for most of the trip, and then came back up South Kebab, if you know anything about the Grand Canyon. And there were two things that really struck me about the experience. The first was we went two whole days without seeing a single person. 
That's kind of refreshing. It's amazing. <laughs> it was so weird and, and unexpected too because it's the Grand Canyon and you, you know we had you had to we had to fight so much to get permits and it was like this whole thing. That being said, the trek that you guys did isn't the normal trek that people yeah, do. Yeah, I guess not. Um, <laughs> it was it was quite a trek. It was tough. It was really challenging, um, but it was really just so peaceful. And it's also so interesting to just wake up and every day all you have to do is get water, get it clean, find a place to put your tent, which is you know, not the easiest thing. Um, and then eat, you know, that's all you have to do. And so that it was just really amazing. And then the other thing that really struck me is, you know, before I went and then a little bit after I was kind of following the activism around the canyon and it turns out there are some big developments that are going to happen on the south rim um, that would involve actually just like completely depleting that aqua the aquifer that fills the south rim so all the little streams that we had to like find and navigate to get water are going to be completely dried up and they were already almost like they were very low because of the drought um so that was really saddening and also just kind of humbling to know like I might be one of the last people to to do that trek because it will be almost impossible without the water there yeah, water's very essential. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to carry, I mean, even even our first day, we had to carry about 13 pounds of water, which, just to give a little bit of uh, background, I'm, I'm about 105 pounds, so it, that's really rough. That backpack was as big as you. Yeah, it was one-third my, my weight, yeah, so <laughs> if, you, if I had had to carry water for the whole trip, I, there's no way, it would have been impossible, so. And I drink a crazy amount of water, so my husband and I actually can't backpack too often in the desert because we have no water sources. Yeah, yeah. So that was really, really sad, and also just feeling really grateful that uh, I was able to do that. And, and of course, I've been following this activist and donating when I can and things like that. But I actually did. We talked about those really short trips mm-hmm. for service. I actually did one in the Grand Canyon when I was in college for we went down for a week and we were working with I believe a land trust moving Mm. a whole bunch of barbed wire one of the coolest experiences we had though was catching the sunrise Mm. over the rim Mm -hmm. did you guys have any amazing I mean it's so amazing I've been to the Grand Canyon before and just as a visitor like camping at the top and it's beautiful the Grand Canyon's beautiful of course it is so different when you're inside because what what is 180 view becomes a 360 view um and yeah the sun casts all these kind of shadows and you're kind of in the shadows and it's yeah it's really really incredible and there's just so much purple too i think people don't realize how purple the grand canyon is but but the way the sun hits it, it it's really oh it's stunning we were there about a month or two ago at the top because our permit didn't get processed yeah. <laughs> sunset or sunrise which was better uh, I think I really liked the sunsets, but that's just because, it would, you know, we would hike all day and then we just like put our packs down, set up our tents, eat really crappy food. <laughs> Which tastes amazing though, right? <laughs> yeah, you, you make it work. Um, and then you'd just be like, oh my gosh, this food is so much more amazing because of what I'm seeing right now. So, yeah. Any big treks on the horizon? Um, yeah, well, I'll be hitting the high Sierras in about a month. Um, and then after that, you know, I'm, I'm looking at PCT for next season or, or John Muir, if we can somehow magically get a permit for that. So, oh, the permitting system. (laughs) What's a dream excursion or adventure that you kind of got on your plate or on your to-do list someday? Uh, Well, so like I said, I'm trying to go to all the national parks. Um, the ones that are going to be the hardest are going to be Hawaii and Alaska. So I would say the dream would be to somehow get enough time and money on my hands to go do a trek through the Alaskan um, national parks, which which are going to be a lot of planning involved. And, um, 
yeah. in a very short season that you can hit those. Yeah, right. It's a, planning really has to work out perfectly. <laughs> what book has been instrumental in helping you bring your work with NGS to life? Wow. Um, we read so many books. You know, the, it's funny. When I first started in GS, I actually thought I was going to be writing a book. Um, so I spent, I was, a, I was a Fulbright in Namibia and I was doing waste management stuff, but I also spent my nights just reading and preparing to launch NGS. And there are very few books really written about national service and its impact and what it could be. So it's, it's kind of funny. There's definitely space for a book to be written there. Yeah. So one of my favorites is The Blue Sweater. Um, which is written by Jacqueline Novogratz. And I think that book really resonated with me personally because she has a kind of similar story to me in terms of like her early 20s. So um, I really like that one. Jacqueline Novogratz, is, she's a, a big TED Talk person. So she has a, some great TED Talks and she does a lot of work with microfinance. So she's a great leader. Um, and then another book I always like to tell 20-somethings, especially 20-somethings who are kind of like lost and feeling like, Oh my gosh, I'm the only one lost. Um, is called Twenty Something Manifesto by um, Christine Hassler, and it's like stories, kind of short stories of people in their twenties, and it's just a great thing to read because it just reminds you you're not alone. Like we're all just trying to get through this decade. <laughs> we all have no idea what we're doing. We all have no idea what we're doing. We're gonna fake so, it till we make it. Yeah. So with that, with those recent grads or even high school graduates, what kind of advice do you have for them? Besides, you're not alone. (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny because I ask that question (laughs) of of all the alumni that I interview. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think my biggest advice for someone in their early 20s is just do a lot of things. I think we get told that for your career, you need to specialize. You need to to get really good at one thing. And and that is true. Eventually, we're going to have to do that. Um, but you're going to be better off if you take a couple years and try a few things, whether it be film or modeling or photography or, you know, marketing, like whatever, whatever it is, because then you're going to find the one that you really do want to commit to. And you're going to be able to really dive into that and make impact and, and do that really well faster. Um, rather than if you just pick something right out of undergrad. So I think it, it's it's scary to do that, to become a kind of a jack-of-all-trades, but I think it's a really good idea. That makes such perfect sense, though, because if you invest that time learning early on, you can really set the trajectory off of what you're passionate about. Exactly. So let's kind of flip the side of the coin, not just the 20-year-olds. Do you have advice for those of us kind of already launched in our career Mm -hmm. or those in 30 who still want their lives to matter and really want to Mm -hmm. resonate with something or maybe looking to do a career shift? Yeah. So national service can absolutely be used for a career shift, um, and it happens quite frequently. Um, But I also recognize that once you're in your 30s, it's really hard to kind of live off of a stipend for a year. So I think what you have to do kind of in that case is really sort of like moonlight. So kind of give up your, some of your evenings, some of your mornings, some of your lunch shift, um, and really do whatever it is that's interesting to you. And the biggest thing I, I see with 30-year-olds especially is like they don't want to launch their blog until it's ready or they don't want to, you know, start working with clients, you know, if they're doing healing services or something like that until they're ready. Um, and the thing is you're never going to be ready. So just, just do it. Um, so I think for 30-somethings like that would be my biggest advice is like, don't make excuses. Don't say you don't have enough time. Everyone has 10 to 15 minutes a day, and that's all you need to start with. Um, and just do something, anything. So, and you, and you can really use that time as your learning and your exploration, right. and just start launching and dabbling and mm-hmm. go. And 
once you start creating momentum, you're going to keep going or you're going to find out that that's not you and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can take content down later. I mean, there's a lot of rules around content and stuff, but like if you publish something and later you want to take it down, that's fine. Or if you want to go back and fix it, you can do that too. I mean, I always say like add a little caveat that you rewrote this on blank date just, you know, so people know, but yeah, you know, nothing is, it's so funny. We live in this world where like anything can be published in a second but everything can be taken down in a second too. So it's very fluid. So what about employers looking to create meaningful opportunities for this new workforce coming out? Mm-hmm. How do they kind of engage them or what advice do you have yeah. Yeah. for them, you know, as they're creating basically the jobs of the future? Yeah. So this is kind of going to be the biggest challenge for companies is that they, it does not matter what product they're making, what kind of work they're doing they have got to build in the social mission. So if you're producing tape, then you need to really explore how that tape could be used, um, whether it's, you know, put into packages and sent overseas for for military work or or whatever it is. You really are going to have to build that social work in and make sure that your employees, your young employees especially, know about this work and know how they can have a hand in it. So for the impact round, Mm -hmm. do you have a mantra or motto that you use to guide your work with NGS Movement? So the quote that I really live by is, let yourself be silently drawn by the strange pool of what you really love. It will not lead you astray. And that's written by Rumi. And that's something that I really live by as I'm on this journey to kind of find my vocation and create a living and a life at the same time. Um, but it's also something that we really try to emphasize to our to our students because a lot of these students are coming to us. They really want to make a difference. Um, they really are excited to get out in the world and do something. But they have debt, <laughs> they have car payments, um, you Darn know, they want to have kids and a family, you know, and so how do we kind of always have them just orient to what their heart is calling them to do and, and to really trust that if they put the work in and they really have a vision for their life that they will be supported, and so. What an amazing mantra to live by. Thank you for joining us for another inspiring session with Movers, shakers, and changemakers, creating a positive impact on the world. Head on over to positiveimpactpodcast.com slash episode three for today's show notes. To get a free audio version of Anna's recommended reading, The Blue Sweater, check out positiveimpactpodcast.com slash goodreads. Until next time, keep doing your part to make the world a better place.